Yo, Rob Harvilla from 60 Songs That Explain the 90s here to inform you that we are back with 30 more songs because the 90s were super long and had a ton of rad music. Please join us every Wednesday for more 60 Songs That Explain the 90s only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line where he flees, no man pursueth. It's Andy Greenwald. You know we are locked in, dialed in when you start with a quote from the show we're going to talk about on the podcast. Two kids who went to Quaker school dropping proverbs early in a podcast on Monday evening tonight. The Watch is addressing Better Call Saul episode four, season six. Hit and run. We're going to do a little bit of that. And then later on in the show, we'll probably talk about some of the other shows that are on right now. Barry, Winning Time, Ozark. Just the overwhelming tidal wave of TV that we're dealing with right now and how that's feeling. But, you know, Saul, one of our favorite shows of the last five to ten years. So we want to take every every moment we can to talk about this. Andy, this one was written by uh, Ann Cherkis and directed in her series directorial debut, I believe, by Ray Seahorn. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously coming off the back of a very tumultuous episode three. uh, And obviously from here on out, if you have not watched this season of Saul or specifically this episode, please, please wait until you've done so because Andy and I are doing spoilers here. So uh, coming off of Nacho's death, a death unremarked upon largely uh, in this episode, Mm -hmm. uh, we get a kind of daffy, kind of maybe a little bit of a throwback Saul episode, which felt like at one part, very comic, somewhat broad in its comic sensibilities. And then as the episode goes on and as you get out of this Howard scenario that uh, Kim and uh, Saul are running on on, um, on their ex-colleague Howard, you get into more of a paranoid thriller. So you kind of get the two sides of Saul in this episode. I thought it was very good. Um, I thought it was, it was like a little jarring to end mm-hmm. Rock and Hard Place the way they did. Uh, in episode three and then go into this and have it be, you know, fake, you know, wigs and pratfalls and hijinks. But that's what makes Saul Saul is the ability to navigate something very kind of like comic, which I think was sort of the original DNA of the show is this idea of like, we're going to do almost like a courtroom comedy with this guy to something very profound, very disturbing and very dramatic. Yeah, it's worth remembering there was a moment in the conception and development of this spinoff where it was potentially going to be a 30-minute comedy. That was in play um, for a while. So that's definitely in the show's DNA. I agree with you in calling Hit and Run kind of classic Saul. I was first and foremost delighted with the episode because as we have seen in many, many, many series as they approach the endgame, real estate runs out, you know? Time runs out. Brother, one of the things... Just you don't, as, a, as a guy who watched six hours of Ozark this weekend, let me tell you. <laughs> right. Well, you basically can sometimes feel the creators chafing against the limited nature of what they have left. And specifically in that it does not give them room to do the things that made them great to begin with. There's often a kind of now we're shifting, we're shifting into the end game. You know, and thus we can't have the little like filigrees and little cul-de-sacs and things that have defined us and it made the journey worth taking. And in so what's first of all, what was great about this episode was that it was a classic Saul episode 
at number 604 with only a couple ticks of the clock left, basically. I was glad they found room for it, and I appreciated it and enjoyed it for what it was. I also thought it made the previous episode kind of intriguing in contrast, mm. because in many ways, the the end of Nacho episode was kind of a Breaking Bad episode, oh, yeah. um, but it was Saul's version of it. And I think to a degree, that made for something that was intellectually stimulating, challenging, and um, engaging, but maybe not as viscerally satisfying as some of those Breaking Bad episodes. And I think one of the reasons for that might be what you alluded to in your opening, which was no one remarked on Nacho's death. Because as part of Better Call Saul's fidelity to its core conceit, which is, as we've been talking about over the course of the season, kind of a deconstruction of Breaking Bad's conceit, important things emotionally might not resonate for people who are sociopaths focused only on the bigger picture. Yeah. Right? Nacho isn't Jesse, and he never was Jesse in the show, which made him a little bit less easy to know and maybe a little bit frustrating when so much was attention was paid to his final moments. But then it was also kind of, I mean, that was what was more devastating, his dramatic, almost heroic self-annihilation or the fact that next episode nobody cares or talks about it. I don't mean that his shadow won't loom large going forward because obviously it does. Saul mentions him in his first appearance in Breaking Bad, but that was part of it. And that's also so very thinky and so very better call Saul. I was was reading Steppenwall's uh, piece about the last episode, about uh, the Nacho episode, and he hammered home the point that for as precise as we think of these two shows Mm -hmm. and for as expertly plotted and inventive as they are, there is a degree of... uh, personal entertainment going on and that they, these guys are like, we like Michael Mando. We're going to keep him around. You know, mm-hmm. so this idea that Nacho meant this and that was always the blueprint because of, you know, Nacho's obvious presence and better and breaking bad where, you know, uh, Saul yells out his name once that he was going to have a role in this show. That's fine. But it was essentially like the same thing that happened with Pinkman, where it's like they bring Aaron Paul on. He's supposed to be on for a few episodes and introduce Walt to the drug world, but winds up becoming maybe the hero of the show and Chris, gets his own spinoff film. It's the same thing that happened to Saul Goodman and Bob Odenkirk. Yeah. He was supposed to be a guest star, and I don't believe he was their first choice, you know? And 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 even if he was, he was hired because Look, they I, wanted to... I was busy. It was supposed to be week. a joke. I was busy. Yeah. That's right. Well, weirdly, Bob Odenkirk was the first choice for this podcast. He was going to do Hollywood Prospectus with me. Um, yeah. But but right, like he was hired to be a comedian. The show was, in, and he turned out to be a brilliant dramatic actor, the same arc of the series. So there's a lot of stuff happening both on a on-screen and off-screen Well, this is what way, makes the show cool, though, is the fact that, you know, it's not, it, I, and you've off, you've used in the past, you described Breaking Bad as, as sort of uh, engineered like a fine watch, you know, like a, mm-hmm. like a, like a luxury watch, like the, the precision of its, of its plotting and of its beats and, and of its tempo was such that it's just, these are master craftsmen. And I think that the part of what's great about being a master craftsman is also being able to be like, I like this guy. I'm going to mess around with this character for a while, or maybe totally. this character can be a major thing. So, you know, I think we were sort of, grappling with you know the departure of Michael Mando from the show last week and I do want to talk about the episode at hand but I I I also found it interesting to consider taking a step back like what was Nacho supposed to be to this show like what was Mm -hmm. his purpose like both thematically but also from a narrative standpoint obviously he provides like a different entree into the cartel drug stuff of of this world that you basically you don't want to rerun Gus and Mike entirely, right? Yes. Well, two things. One, I appreciate what you said about the the, the watch analogy. I think that a, a, a fine, precise Swiss craftsman who also leaves room for the possibility of inspiration or surprise is an artist. Of a cuckoo coming you know, that, out every once in a while, but, yeah. But exactly. That's the difference. It's and, and at its best, this show is both in a way that is dazzling and unlike anything else on TV. So to the nacho point, yeah, look... I. Part of the narrative of this show is that it is a corrective to Breaking Bad and they had enough time to plan for things and they got everything right, both thematically, narratively, but also morally, maybe, in a way that they weren't able to fully imagine or conceive of in in the previous show. That's probably true to a degree, and I think that there'll be a lot of essays written along those lines that I'll probably agree with. I also think that it might be interesting, not in a trolley way, but was the character of Nacho wholly successful? 
Um, maybe. I think that they used him for a bunch of different things. I mean, look, big picture, yes, because Michael Mando was terrific and it delivered a great performance and contributed to some of the show's best moments. So unquestionably, I'm not saying this was a mistake, but I appreciate what you were saying that like, okay, so what was his purpose? I think initially maybe it was to unite the Jimmy storyline with the cartel storyline and maybe follow them both as lower level people stumbling into something larger. But then he kind of became an expositional cog to run back all of the Hector Salamanca stuff and mm-hmm. you know, giving him, he was the reason why he's in the uh, wheelchair and bringing in all our old friends from south of the border and all the Gus stuff. So he was kind of our window into that part. And then when Lalo got introduced, then he got attached to Lalo at the hip. Um, so, and, and never saw Jimmy again. Right. Yeah. So is that a part of the circle that they're happy to have not squared? I mean, I think, I think they probably made peace with it and it's going to come, it's going to come roaring back for enough for him to say Ignacio when Jesse and Walt have a gun at his head. But yeah, they left that one on the cutting room floor, whatever sure. they were thinking about doing. So all the, all the what if stuff that they do on this show. And I think that you can get into this episode by talking about it is just like that opening pre-credit sequence of this yes. couple riding their bikes around a suburban development and complaining about the trim on a house or the paint job on a house and zoning and everything like that. And then they get into their house and they've got this security set up uh, and all these guys with guns walking around their house. And it's, you know, we find out by the end of the episode that those are Gus's men. Uh, we don't really know how he's wound up, you know, acquiring this these two people's lives in the process. Well, it's just the, 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 uh, the unending money tap, right? Yeah. That he could afford to buy this house or buy their silence and then buy it, make a tunnel between them. I mean, we just, at this point, he's a, he's a super villain. But um, I think what we're saying about like, remembering Nacho as a great character and another triumph in the show that just hits every mark that it aims for. It makes me think of like Slip and Jimmy in Chicago who would probably tell you that the best con men, it's not about like how quick your wrist wrist is or how fast you can speak. It's really just, can you make them look somewhere else? Mm -hmm. How successful are you at that? And to that score, Peter Gould and, and Vince Gilligan are masters. Because we never talk about the things that must have been killing them, right? Like the mistakes they made or the the the, the holes that they left. We're never talking about or that. Or the corners and they instead, wrote themselves into and then they were like, yeah. shit, I guess we got to do this. And, and that's why um, instead what, what we're looking at, and we can pivot to the episode as you just nicely did. Like when the opening sequence of this episode started, I'm sitting here being like, they're such geniuses, not necessarily for this idea to follow people we don't know into a situation we don't know. Because I almost texted you like, oh my God, is this like the tequila stopper? Am I going to get murdered for not knowing what this house is again? Yeah. Who are these um, people? Yeah, I right. feel like I watch the show like a slightly above average normie. You know, I'm not like cramming the text, but anyway. Um, but what I was doing instead while watching it was like, you know, these are day players that they cast probably locally who are making it a good impression they captured all the right coverage of them on bikes in the neighborhood. They the the street, the tone, the matches, the stretching, with the, yeah, the score. Like they just conceived it and executed it to a degree that then I'm just sort of not bothered by what I don't know. When they walked into the house, I don't know if you had this experience watching it, but when they walk into the house and there's a guy helping himself or cooking, right, and they don't acknowledge him, I was like, oh my god! So this is a scene we're watching in two timelines, right? Like we are seeing a couple come home and then we're also seeing laid over top of it, the police investigating their murder or whatever it is. And also the episode's called hit and run. So I was waiting for them to get hit by a truck, blah, blah, blah. It has me going and looking at the wrong things. And I'm, am I being conned or am I being entertained? What's the difference? Yeah. I mean, they are able to keep you on your toes so well. You just, you just wind up being that much more attentive to the finer details of plot lines that I think, I mean, I, so for instance, I wanted to ask you about this Howard thing because this has been now a multi-episode arc of this season. It's something that they've dedicated a lot of screen time to. Obviously, a lot of intellectual heft to is Kim and Saul's efforts to entrap slash besmirch Howard as Look a... Look you calling him Saul, too. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, That's a, right. A drug-addled, philandering mess. And specifically to get Clifford Maine to think oh, Howard is actually, you know, this this erratic drug addict. And, you know, it is very, like, it, it kind of harkens back to the first few seasons of these kinds of 
cons that that Kim and Jimmy would play, and they like you, you know you 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 would be forgiven to think, is this a little too clever by half? Like, is there a more direct route between A and B? But it's super entertaining. I was curious what you thought of the Howard stuff so far, and whether or not you're like, why? Where is this going? Why are these people so dedicated to ruining this dude in such an elaborate way? And then I had some other stuff I wanted to ask you about Kim coming out of that. Well, to start with, what I liked was Patrick Fabian, a really enjoyable performer, has had in some ways the strangest life on this show because he's never carried any plot. He's just been around for a bunch of them, right? And and that's not a, a ding on him. That's just the way he's been used. I really liked clearing out to give him a little something in this. And His I thought ther- he delivered office. on the performance. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 I think it was intentional in the best way, which was he's just a guy, you know, and he clearly we I don't think we've met his wife. Like I'm sure the people who recognize the tequila stopper will be on my ass about that if we did. But in a few lines between the therapy and the sort of cracks in his sunny demeanor and the issues with his home life, he's just a person. And that makes it harder incrementally to root for. Saul now and 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 Kim like it's just harder every moment we spend with him it makes it seem worse what they're doing it makes it seem more sociopathic what they're doing and it makes and I thought this was probably the most successful aspect of the episode it makes Kim's constant attempts to balance her own moral scales that for every step she takes in the Saul direction she tries to take two steps in the direction of you know, social pro bono social justice work. Yeah. It makes it seem even more desperate, frankly, although she is always, you know, completely in, has complete composure even when, when Mike speaks to her. But, but that I, th- I thought one of the most elegant pieces of writing was that the, the, you know, the, the turn or whatever you call it. Remember in the prestige, there's like the something and the <laughs> yeah, turn, yeah, and the yeah. prestige. whatever the part of the trick it was, that was the crucial part was, wrapped up in this bow of her selling Ed Begley's character on some fund where she could just help people and that it worked. Yeah. Right. That, that she does think that somehow she's keeping things as balanced as the scales of justice. I thought that was, I thought that was really fascinating, but, but yeah, there is a feeling that is getting impossible to ignore. That is a little reminiscent of, of what some people hoped they were doing with breaking bad and what they, I think they were successful in doing, which is, are we rooting for the right people here? Right. And it's just getting tougher to have fun. Yeah. And I think that the the interesting thing to watch is Kim and Saul have that conversation, maybe not explicitly with one another. So you're right to point yeah. out that it seems like Kim is always doing the blind justice statue of if for as mm-hmm. hard as I go on Howard or if I burn the Kettleman's to the ground, then I take on three cases that, you know, are unwinnable or you know, they, I need to, I need to represent this kid who is stuck in a, in an armed robbery situation that was, had nothing to do with him. And then, so she's trying to balance that out. Whereas Jimmy's sense of balancing it out is to go further and further into Saldom and to, mm-hmm. you know, find a new office and have all these hell's angels basically that he's representing. So I, I, I like that part. That's a little, uh, that's obvious, but I thought it was really cool, you know, to watch this episode through the eyes of, what I imagine Ray Seahorn sees her character as. Yeah, because she directed the episode. pretty rare that, you know, it, it doesn't happen a lot. You know, obviously I just watched the last season of Ozark and Jason Bateman directed the finale. And, you know, you get to see maybe this is what this person thinks of this show. And I, I thought it was interesting. I thought Kim was a lot more twitched up this episode. So a lot more nervy, a little bit more on the surface with her uh, emotions to some extent, like I, in terms of like before Clifford sits down, all the like rearranging of the table and, you know, tapping her foot and like trying to get the angle right so that Ed Begley will see uh, Odenkirk drive past in the Jaguar. And then even like the scene with Mike in the, in El Camino in the, in the restaurant, she, I think betrays a little bit more terror at the idea of this guy has decided not only to, you know, first surreptitiously tail me, but now confront me because of this one in 1,000, which knowing Breaking Bad and Better Girl Saul, the, the one is going to be the one that hits, chance that Lalo is coming for us and that Lalo is going to use, like, we're going to be, we're essentially bait for Lalo. And 
I thought that this version of Kim in this episode, not that it was at all really divergent, just felt a little bit more wired and a little bit more yeah. nervous and scared and aware. And then that last scene, which I think we've had variations on this idea that like Kim sees Saul for the first time or is seeing Saul for who he is. At the end there, you know, it felt a little bit more melancholy than maybe it has in the past. Although I guess I guess it always has. Well, I thought the jitteriness was baked in in a really good way. You're right to point out the heel clicking and then the, the the fear of Lalo just on her face, which led to when she's in the parked car and Jimmy knocks on the window to show the office, maybe my TV was a little dark or I had some back glare, but I I, I jumped a little bit. Yeah. Right? Like the, the fear of Lalo was there and I didn't understand who was outside the car window. And, you know, look, let's, let's run it back to Breaking Bad. Who's the one who knocks right. on the window and who should you be afraid of? Right. I thought that was really interestingly done. I do want to say before we get into the 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 most, I don't know, foregrounded click of the dial into the Saul Goodman we met that the show has had in a while, which was, you know, just getting right into the like, he's a legend now, back to the, he can't be in the uh, nail salon anymore. He's going to have a new office. He's going to have a new attitude. He's not welcome at the courthouse. Like all these things are, he's becoming the pariah yeah. that he then embraces all of that. I do think it's worth noting as we run out of episodes here, Kim, just an all-time great hang, just a legendary hang again and again. And the reason why I want to say this is not the body of work that, that, that we've seen from her from the past few seasons, but even in, in a stressful moment, at the end of her days are so long, you know, even without the being tailed by drug people. Right. No matter what, at the end of the day, when whoever she's with, and it's often Jimmy's just like, there's a good taqueria in you here. And she's just like, let's go, I'm hungry. Yeah. Do you know, I feel like all of us go through life looking for someone, whether it's a romantic partner or a pal, to just be that level just of be supportive like, of an let's idea. Let's go get tacos. Yeah. Or just like, here's an idea. And the person you're with being like, that's all I want to do. Don't talk anymore. Right. Let's go eat it. I mean, bravo. Bravo. But circling back to who she is, I get, it's such a gift to have these years of development of a character with such a great actor. So much of her is, of course, her public-facing demeanor, the clothes she wears, the face she pulls, you know, her her stiffened spine. And, you know, we know as fellow adults, like a lot of being an adult is faking it until you make it, like act a certain way in a situation and then see, see how it goes. And maybe people will believe that you're that way. And maybe you'll start to believe it too. And you won't be faking it anymore. But to do that as continually as she has done, and, and, and I still feel like we don't know a ton about her backstory and what fuels her. Although, you know, there's some class resentment. There's some, all that has been there. I'm not saying we haven't touched yes, on it at all. Yeah, some mom stuff, yeah. Some mom stuff. Even though she is not and would not consider herself like, you know, a criminal or a con woman, there has to be this sort of belief that you could just keep faking it even when you start to be Wiley Coyote going out over the cliff, you know? And she, could she, at this moment, this fictional character, if we pulled her aside and did like a confessional interview like she was on Top Chef, could could she pinpoint the moment when she lost touch with ground? I think what's interesting about the show this season is I don't know if she could point to that moment. And what's probably brilliant about the construction and the writing is we could have a spirited argument over where that moment was. Yeah, and I also think that over the last couple of seasons especially, she's somebody who has started to realize that the action is the juice, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think that doing cons with... Jimmy Saul is... We're going to struggle with this. If, I, I don't really know, but like the thing is, is that at, now actually on the show, yeah. there is this moment where we're fluidly people. moving into it. And yeah, like the Jimmy, I think that's Jimmy in the bed when he's like, you know, quoting Proverbs to her and chatting with her. I think it's Saul when he's like, check out my office. I'm going to represent yes. the dregs of society. Uh, you know, she obviously is titillated by some of the things that sh- that he does. I think she also sees some of their actions as ultimately a a form of metting out justice, you know? Like, Mm. I think that they are, she looks at it a little bit as like this kind of Robin Hood thing. He does not, obviously. But ultimately, I keep going back to the dynamics of their relationship, which is the thing I think is maybe the crowning achievement of this show because it's unlike a lot of relationships on television. Like we've talked about before, maybe we're harping on it. It's not an electrically sexual romantic relationship. It's a marriage out of convenience to create spousal privilege in legal proceedings. And I would go as far to say is that I don't know that they have like that dynamic of a life outside of this shared 
work mm-hmm. that they have. A lot of what they do is like, what should I wear to the courthouse? What are you doing today? When will I meet you afterwards? Who's going to pick up Thai food? It's like this organism that's not built around like, you're my best friend and we're in love. And then we also happen to have jobs. It's We have these jobs that are intertwined and we also happen to live together and be married and have food and I guess have sex. You know, so it's like, it's it's this fascinating kind of inverted work relationship that actually gets at maybe, you know, you're talking about the performative nature of adulthood. Also like the hollowness of adult life where you're like, I guess I either have to devote myself to my work yes. or not be successful, but either, there's not kind of a middle ground. Well, there. They're also both refugees. Like once Chuck yeah. was off the board, they don't, I mean, it's, we alluded to some mom stuff, but they don't have family. Right. They don't have friends. You know, they had, they have passions and ambitions and chips on their shoulder in common. And yeah, like th- that could definitely be enough. I mean, there is no one model relationship, but it is increasingly exposed, right? Like, are they holding on to each other or are they sinking together? Yeah. You know, at the same time, like a waving or drowning kind of situation. And I think we should give note to how satisfying it is when on a show like this, the two of probably the two most popular characters of the show who have barely ever shared the screen get to do a scene together. And Jonathan Banks was amazing. Ray Seahorn was amazing. It was worth the wait. Yeah. But just how unsettled she was, not as I'm thinking about it, not just by the, oh, this homicidal Mexican drug kingpin is still alive and probably gunning for you but by the fact that she had been seen and watched. Yes. That we can all justify all kinds of things to ourselves when they only exist in our head. And then you say it out loud or someone you share with someone and you see their face when you tell them what you've been doing and you're like, oh, (laughs) that's how it is. And for her to be watched and observed and in a way that was, she wasn't capable of doing the thing that she's done with like Schweikert or the other or, or Howard where she pivots to resentment and making the person who maybe has some insight into the villain. She mm-hmm. can't do that with Mike. Mike's nobody. Mike's the guy who used to be the parking lot. He was attendant. the parking attendant. Yeah. So yeah, she it, just got seen. That scene was so cool because, you know, you think about maybe character meetings that you've maybe in your mind anticipated or thought about. But on something like Game of Thrones, it's like oh, this person's coming from the North and this person's coming from King's Landing and they've never seen each other for five seasons and finally they're going to meet. These mm-hmm. people have been in Albuquerque. They've passed each other in the hallway probably. You know what I mean? They've probably been at the same lunch spot. Like I, One of my favorite little details was all the lawyers eating at the outdoor yeah. lunch tables and no one will sit with Saul. You know, But like Kim and Mike have been among one another and not known it. And that's probably, you're right, it is the most scary thing is this idea that like, oh, I thought I was kind of I thought I had a firm grasp of my surroundings and I don't. Speaking of surroundings, I I know I do this at least once a season. I just want to go back to of all the decisions that were ever made in the creation of this Breaking Bad universe, obviously, you know, casting Brian Cranston, a huge one. There have been many good decisions made along the way, but I keep coming back to maybe the most foundational one was the decision to not double Albuquerque for a different city. Oh my God. Yeah. The the Albuquerque of it, and I say this as as a, a former... As a Kirk, know, resident. yeah, Captain Kirk over here. It's so phenomenal. It's so specific. And their embrace of the specificity of the place is so wonderful. You know, it makes it at once real because it's happening on a real landscape, with, but, it, but also universal because there are a lot of smaller towns with quirks in America, you know, where something like this could grow and blossom in surprising ways. And, and then even just the added thing that like the Crossroads Motel which is the linchpin of this con yeah. where they pick up, I forget her name, the, 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 the prostitute who's been on the show multiple times. That's right off of downtown. Right. Like it's very iconic. It's incredible signage, but it's not very far from the courthouse. You know, it is, it is a town that is correctly sized for a show of overlaps and coincidences in a way that just felt, it just feels really satisfying. I love all the little details about like driving down from Santa Fe. Did you have traffic and, it just feels so lived in that you, again, you're maybe it keeps your eye where they want your eye to be listening to these details and not thinking about how Gus just has an unlimited billion dollar slush fund to do whatever he wants to stay in charge. Right. Uh, anything else you want to hit on this episode before we chat about some other stuff? No, only to say that like, like with Breaking Bad, I know 
because I can Google it, how many episodes are left in this half of the season and how many are left overall. But I don't have my sea legs as to where we are in this endgame because A, they're good at it. And so they keep us on our toes. B, we still don't know among the many things we don't know if at some point, like they could wrap up. Yeah. Yes. Like we don't know this storyline, all of this stuff, the Lalo, the Kim, it could be done in two weeks Right or three weeks? How many episodes are in this half? I know I just said I could. Google I think it's it, like but se- I, didn't. I think it's seven and seven. I, if right, I, if so I remember correctly. it could be done in a couple of weeks, and then the whole next part could be shot in black and white in the present day. Or I know whatever. it could just we be the know. ins and outs of running a Cinnabon in Nebraska. I'm interested. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan, with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's talk about some other stuff. Uh, Where do you want to start? You want to go with Barry? You want to go with Winning Time? You want to talk about... uh, Let's just do... Let's run through Winning Time a little bit. Just to take a temperature check because I know you talked about it on on another pod, but I'm just curious where you are with your enjoyment level and what you're watching it for at this point with one episode to go? Uh, Yeah. So... uh, as I mentioned on the Prestige TV podcast, it was uh, I thought there was a lot of Philadelphia erasure from from this episode, just the focusing on Bird not making it to the finals. I thought Wood Harris was incredible in this most it, recent. It's weird because Chris, you personally have no experience working for a place where the exploits of Philadelphia sports teams. Do you want to constantly... talk? Do you want to talk through it a little bit? Because nobody knows why you're fired up about this. Can I do it? I'll do it for you. Sure. Andy's favorite podcast. He mentions Marin a lot. Sometimes yeah. I'll mention Ezra Klein. His favorite podcast is the Bill Simmons podcast. Of course. He listens. As soon as they go up, I get a text yeah. message outlining what he liked about it and how he felt that Philadelphia got short shrift in whatever capacity they did. To, to be fair, <laughs> I do this. I text Bill as well. I know. About it. Maybe I maybe a few less adverbs. but And I, yes, I, 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 I just was doing a podcast with Bill earlier today and, and noted to him that he and Rosillo were dwelling on like the future of D'Angelo Russell in Minnesota in minute 43 of Sunday night's yes. part one before yes. they mentioned that Boston got annihilated by Giannis on Sunday. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, I thought the most amazing thing of this week's podcast was when, when, when Bill is musing about how, you know, you can have all the expectations in the world for a game and then you can just be shocked and be like, oh, I guess I was totally wrong about what's going to happen with that game. And Ryan goes with Boston, and he goes, yeah. And he goes, so you think the Bucks?" And he goes, oh, no. Bill's like, no, I meant that Boston was going to destroy the Nets. I was talking about the Brooklyn series still. <laughs> I mean, okay. Yeah, so yes. So Philadelphia yes. erasure, something that you're very sensitive to as well as me. Uh, no, in all truth, I mean, I thought that this episode was quite good. I found, I think that it's it's been fascinating to know that they did five episodes before the season started, pretty much. You know, like they get 
it's like four or five episodes to get to this first NBA campaign. And then it's been before like... This, before the basketball season started. Yeah, but like they go... Yes. At first it's like, you know, Tarkanian, and then it's, mm-hmm. wh- who's Jack McKinney? And Jack McKinney's been hired, but are they going to adopt Showtime? And then Pat Riley gets hired right. and, you know, all this stuff. And then the McKinney accident. And it's like, that's five, six episodes. And then we've we've kind of done the NBA season in about two and a half episodes, which is a fascinating choice because this whole debate about whether winning time is for casuals or... NBA psychos is an interesting one because I'm curious about when you're going about making a show, especially one about a workplace, how much of it do you want to be about the really detailed minutia of that workplace? Because that, I think, lends the show a lot of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, We Own the City is a show that I think is balancing a lot of like really, really heavy ideas about society with really, really, really detailed study of police work, which mm-hmm. is also something in The Wired it. For Winning Time, I think they've kind of like now kind of tipped over towards interpersonal drama and away from really like the kind of more like granular NBA stuff that personally I'm interested in, but understand it might not be for everybody. Yeah, there's no room for any other personalities. I mean, Dr. J is on it and makes an impression in that one episode previously, the All-Star Game episode. Bird is both there and looming, but they cleave through the Western Conference like a knife through butter. Without yeah, it's a montage. I think it's like, oh, player, they beat Phoenix. Yeah. Which is, you know, there's not a, it's, it's a superstars league and there's really only room for the superstars, right? That that we're following. I think it's interesting to, to pair your point about not really going into the basketball as much as we would expect the, with the fact that they also just played wildly fast and loose with the basketball schedule. You know, I thought in some ways I found that more surprising than we are going to take certain attributes of real life people and turn those attributes up to 10 or 11 on the spinal tap meter in order to wring more drama out of them. That's just what TV writing is, regardless of the legalities of Jerry West's defamation case. But like, that's what all people do when they have a character is you, they're fictional at this point once they're on TV and you amp up certain things. I, I was less surprised by that than I was by the fact that like, they invented road trips or they like made it seem like they lost more games than they did. I I think they, Again, they created a little into, bit more adversity maybe for Westhead than there was, yeah. For Westhead, exactly. And that I get that. Um, I'm curious. I Again, I haven't been like checking the, the official record of events to the degree that maybe I should have. But like I, I, I was unclear whether the, the McKinney stuff, any of that happened in terms yeah. of his just like... I mean, he got in an accident. He was out no, for no, months. That stuff I knew. But I mean, like the stuff in last night's episode specifically where he is going to get the job back, but due to some you know, concussion-like symptoms in evidence in public in the workplace in front of Jerry Buss, he lost the opportunity. So I read a you know? 1980 Philadelphia Inquirer article about Buss deciding to go with West I, I think it was the Boston Globe, Chris. No. There are no Philadelphia newspapers <laughs> from that era. And uh, I'll put it this way. It makes Jerry Buss seem a little bit more like the cartoon character that you would think of of Jerry Buss, where he's just basically like, I had to make a choice between these two candidates for the job. It was tough, but ultimately, like, I bought this team to have fun, and I have more fun with the other guy and not Jack. And that that's alluded to earlier in the season, where I think everybody is a little bit like, who's Jack McKinney? Mm-hmm. He's pretty ser- serious. He's pretty stern. He's pretty remote. He's not like a ball of, of laughs. Now, you could make the argument that in the show, Westhead and Riley so far are not, like, exactly, like, super fun hangs. But I think that the idea is that it was just as much a personality clash as it was a concern over the right. ability of West of McKinney to do the job. Here's what I would say about this episode, the ninth episode. And I think this, for me, this is a very positive sign that this is how I want to frame it for the show going forward because it's already been renewed for a second season. For me, this episode was so much less about the historical record or the basketball than it was about Wood Harris just absolutely slam dunking an incredibly powerful monologue taken from Spencer Haywood's actual life biography. Mm -hmm. You know, it was about Sally Field just going ISO. You know, Sally Field, a brilliant actress who is also, you know, in recent years, a a, a star, right? Like she's she's fun in things and and being reminded that she's an Academy Award winning actress who can really go for it in those ways. Brett Cullen, who is one of the bedrock like glue guys on yeah, this yeah. team. Um, he plays the general manager, uh, Bill. Um, and he, he, gives, he gives that actor. speech to Jerry West about and he joining the Navy. Speech. Yeah. yeah, and I'm like, okay, okay. Now we're really taking advantage of the resources that have been acquired to make this show. You know, like 
they've, they have all this talent. Like, let's just let them go with some good writing and some good scene work. Like, again, the beginning of the season, we were talking about, well, why is Julianne Nicholson on the show? Well, it's to do killer scenes with Tracy Letts on an exercise bike. Right. You know, I don't think it's that much of an ask of her time to be like, come on in and crush some acting. These guys like to act as much as the the characters they're playing love to ball. Yeah, it you know? also and might I, be some really savvy, savvy, like Gillian Jacobs doing Chris Riley has been in three scenes this season. I would imagine as this show moves forward, she'll be a major part of it because Pat Riley will be a bigger part of the Lakers, you know, and that will, that will probably be a season two thing. She might have been like, sure, I'll do like a week of shooting and then come back and have a like above, you know, an in the credits role in the second season. I also love, I really love Adrian Brody on the show. Yeah. Um, you know, what an interesting career that is clearly thriving and not going anywhere. So no need to make it seem elegiac, but you know, wins an Academy Award early, maybe too early, and then kind of gets a little bit lost being like, am I the star of things? And then reinvents himself as a very compelling and quirky and charismatic supporting player, particularly in Wes Anderson movies. But what's great about this show and his role in it and his apparent, again, I don't know what it's like to work with him, but just what we see on the screen, like his his generosity of being a part of the ensemble is that he's in an ensemble like the Wes Anderson movies, but it's not quirky. He's still just acting his ass off, right? But not outshining anyone else. Not yeah, well, the cool thing about the Wes Anderson movies is the same thing that's cool about Succession, which is it allows people who are maybe eighth on the call sheet to get star moments. Yeah. So in in those Wes Anderson movies where it's like Adrian Brody might be in five minutes of or 10 minutes of Grand Budapest, but, you but he owns are, them. Yeah, he's amazing in it. And same thing for David Rashi in like Succession. You know what I mean? Like you might just be like, oh, yeah, by, oh this guy is just like crushing every scene he's in. It's really good writing. It's just not, yeah. it's not throwing anybody to the wolves. And I think, I think winning time, you know, I think sometimes it's a little like, uh, people speaking in the historical importance of who they are or the moment they're in. And it's not like necessarily, it doesn't feel as lived in as I would Mm -hmm. like it to be. But I think it also has a tremendous amount of work to do to create an awareness of what's going on. So that's why the characters sometimes have to talk that way. I do think that the the nicest thing that it's done is like created this, uh, albeit somewhat fictional bus character who can act as the narrator for like all of this stuff. And he does a really, really good job with that. Riley does. I just think the show's a blast still, you know, and I, and I'm, and I, and I'm liking it and appreciating it more now that it's been able to maintain that energy and that enthusiasm and that pleasure for nine hours. So let me ask you It was you easier this. to do it after one or two. To, this sort of segues into what I wanted to chat with you about for the rest of the show, which is mm-hmm. why is it that winning time is a pleasure for you and other stuff is a chore? And I don't mean you specifically as much as in this moment where you could be busy watching 12 to 20 hours of television every week, why is it that like you always seem like to have, you're all bushy-tailed about winning time every week and then like other things I think people are like, oh man, I gotta, whether it's like the homework of doing it or whether it's the binging of it or falling behind and feeling like you have four hours of it. It's a great question. I think that everyone at this moment of, of inundation or whatever we want to talk about it, and as we've alluded to before, this is unprecedented. And it's unprecedented because of the backup on the runway because of COVID. So a lot of shows needed to come out, whether they were delayed for multiple years, you know, like Atlanta and Barry, or they were just in the pipeline and ready to go at this point. But also they all need to go now because the Emmy window is May 31st. So, but it's like to be, there's not there's not 50 Emmy nominations. Like there's not no, 50. there aren't. Yeah, and it's so going like, to be a bloodbath. Yeah, but but increasingly, as we detach from the reality of hard Nielsen numbers, getting nominated, getting in the conversation, like that is even more a crucial part of these streamers' understanding of what has value to them. So yeah. it's overweighted in that direction. So I would imagine something but, like, say, Gaslit, which I actually did check out and 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 thought was like much different than I thought it was going to be, but was yeah. was actually like pretty entertaining. And also just is like got the pinch me element of Sean Penn and Julia Roberts are on this TV show about Watergate. Is that the kind of thing that you imagine? I suppose we could just ask Sam, but is that the kind of thing you imagine where it's like for Sean Penn and Julia Roberts to do this show, they need to make it come out at a certain time so that it's in contention for the Emmys. Well, yes, but you could also reverse it. Like one of the reasons why Stars, a network not known for winning Emmys or being nominated for them, gets into business with Sam and UCP, the studio, to make this show and to fund a very expensive show is to 
have a different result than they've had in the past sure. to play okay. in that sandbox. So they, Stars doesn't make the show if they're not making an, an awards play. Like it doesn't make sense to their portfolio otherwise. But to your larger point, I think that one of the side effects of this great flood is that people are definitely being forced back into their corners of like, I, look, I just like spy shows. Yeah, right. So I'm going to like that. And I think that that's also part of the thinking behind the the deluge of of podcast shows or rip from the headline shows, which is a true crime story is as universally popular and reliable now as a medical drama used to be or a cop drama, right? So there are people probably who have had the time of their life these last two months just ripping through Girl from Plainville, which I liked a lot, and We Crashed, which I didn't even have time to check out. You know what I mean? But like for them, it's just more content in the vein that they like. So there is an aspect of that where, yes, I have prioritized Slow Horses and maybe even Minks and Winning Time because they're either in genres that I like or they just, they're not challenging me that extra piece of, I don't know if I like to be in this world. Mm -hmm. You know, I like basketball and I like watching good actors have fun. I'm excited to check out Gaslit, not because I feel the need to educate myself on May 2nd, 2022 about Watergate, but because the tone seems right up my alley and I like really good actors having a good time. So I think that's definitely part of it. I have noticed what used to be a critic's complaint starting to leach into the consumer side of it, which is for the last five years, whether in print or on a podcast, when you and I have started to say, well, a lot's coming out and there's a lot to keep track of, I think we've always caveated it by saying, well, no one complains about the the all-you-can-eat buffet at Sizzler because mm-hmm. you know, no one actually has to eat all of it. If you're a consumer, you pick what you want. But I'm starting to see this complaint more um, anecdotally or in our Facebook group or whatever, where people, I saw today, someone was like, please stop releasing the first three episodes of something. This is violence. Like, I can't do it. And I'm already behind. I don't like that. I don't like that policy. I I, I mean, mean, it's not like I, I I think I'm just like, if this is going to be the volume of shows, they just need to be once a week. But to to be, we we just, this just happened to us with Under the Banner of Heaven, a show we loved the first episode of, and I really liked the second episode of it, even though it's like, I think more, you know, I think it's a little bit more, slower i guess i don't know i thought it was it, i liked the first episode more but this just the fact that like that went up and we were two hours behind i mean there's just always this feeling of playing catch up with tv right now that i think is tough on this and and, and then to, to that point you know you're talking about like oh well the sizzler buffet you can just show some self-restraint i so this weekend like i you know ozark came out on friday and my wife and, and i were the just final kinda, part of the, the final, final part of the final season and my wife and i were like you know I guess we have to like watch this all this weekend because otherwise there will be a vulture headline if there's not already no disrespect that's going to be like about that ending, you know, that basically gives away something that happens. And I'm like, I just spent like five years watching Ozark. I don't really want it to be like spoiled essentially because I made I t- hit V on my Chrome bar and it went to vulture like absentmindedly. But that's happened. You know what I mean? That, that has happened. And I was, you know, we burned through these episodes, I think more than anything to see like what happens, you know, it was really just about like uh, not wanting to get this, this sort of moment taken away from us after spending so many years watching it. And I was like, this is just no way to fucking watch pop culture. Like this is no way to consume it. It's like this weird, like let's watch six hours of a show. And there are times where I've watched six hours of a Netflix show willingly but there's usually a degree of discovery and electricity to that. Um, with Ozark, it just felt like I was like, man, I got to get through the end of this thing. Part of what fueled the rise of the prestige TV era was the beautiful symmetry with the rise of the internet. And yes, even though it pains me to say it, with to some degree, the rise of social media, that you could be part of the larger water cooler conversation. We have now stretched, if not completely ripped the bonds between those two things, not just because social media is a festering cesspool, but because you can't do it. FOMO cannot be the reason you engage with any art. Right. And it certainly can't be on this scale. And I don't know what the fix is, but it is bizarre because, you know, I, I think that I, I think I've, I've watched two or three episodes of Moon Knight. Oscar Isaac and Ethan Hawke are starring in a Marvel show. I'm going to finish the series. I bet I'll have some thoughts about it, but I have hit eject on my seat in the great quinjet of culture with that show because I can't do it. Yeah. I can't keep up. I, I simply can't. And that's 
a bummer, I guess, in terms of that extra electricity of excitement you can have when you engage with something. But it's just the it, it's just the nature of it. And we've done a couple of times. You know, I did one with Juliet recently over the years. These primetime grids where we were like, if you were going to sit down from eight until yeah. twelve, and we kind of like it's like supposed to harken back to the time when you would turn it, get to turn on the TV at eight and watch these couple of sitcoms, and then there would be a few dramas, and then there would be late night. Here's the thing: no one ever really does that. No one actually watches four to five hours of television a night, and you could watch four to five hours of television a night now and still be behind. Like, generally speaking, you would watch maybe two or three sitcoms and then you would leave the room for a while and do something else. And then maybe you would come back and watch LA Law or West Wing or whatever the hell, like the drama that was on at 10. I Nobody can really sit there from eight o'clock until 12 and just be like, I'm just grinding stuff out. And you know what? Yeah. The thing is, is that it does start to shave down your nerve endings where I don't think you are really appreciating something if you're not also taking a beat in between to yes. think about it. I mean, that's that's what I'm really, really, really trying they, to do without falling dreadfully behind on television. These corporations are not making these shows for us to live like this. No. They don't really care. No, because also they're like, we most people would probably have like a normal life and then get to their weekend and choose one or two of these things right. to watch. Well, not like, oh, I have to watch Tokyo Vice, Shining Girls, Blah blah blah. Like in th- like, no one should be grinding out hour long mysteries no. like this. And, it, and um, something has gone very awry here because, like Atlanta, which we will maybe if we don't talk yeah, about we'll it talk today. About like Thursday. I'm still, let's talk about I'm still an episode. I'm I think I'm one episode behind, possibly two episodes behind. Which, by the way, that sucks. I waited three, four years for the show, and right. I've fallen behind on it. Um, that is a show that is designed, I think, to be a part of the conversation and the culture. And certainly the way that they built this season, where I think by my number, I mean, I haven't seen the last one or two, but 50% of them at least don't feature the main cast. They yeah. are heady think pieces of television in, you know, created to get you talking and feeling things. They should be, oh, it's 8 p.m. I don't know what time the show airs, by the way. I have no idea, but it's whatever time it's supposed to be on TV, on FX, and let's talk about it the next day. The world doesn't do that anymore. Now, FX knows that. The show is loudly and broadly and proudly marketed as FX streaming on Hulu. Like it's not an original on Hulu. It goes on the linear network, but it is, it's there for you. That's where these companies are going. And by the way, it's not just where they're going. It's where they've gone. This is no shade or disrespect at the Emmy winning genius God level show Atlanta. But Atlanta, when it airs on FX is getting 200,000 viewers. That is 50% of the much missed USA drama Briar Patch. You know what I mean? (laughs) My show shouldn't even be mentioned on the same podcast as Atlanta. But do you get what I'm saying about where that the bottom has just completely fallen out of that? Right. And so what it does is it streams on Hulu for people to find and discover, but the culture isn't built that way. And the last point about this I wanted to make was specifically about Barry, which is a show that you and I have loved and covered on the podcast. And I was very excited for it to return. And I had an experience watching the third season premiere that was like people in my life who have had COVID telling me what wine tasted like for a month afterwards, where it's just like, this is something I love. Why does it taste weird? Why does it taste gross? Like I didn't enjoy the season premiere. Now, was I in the wrong headspace or was it the end of a day or was I jet lagged still? I don't know. But I actually think what was happening was it had been three years because there's so much other content and so much other life. I did not block out eight hours, 10 hours or whatever to rewatch the first two seasons. And I was instead having my head just rudely dunked into the toilet bowl of the show's aesthetic and vibe. Yeah. That I didn't remember. And I was like, this is kind of rough, but it's funny. What's it doing? I'm not happy here. And I was ready to be like, I wasn't ready because I don't want to be this like, anymore. But part of me was like, are we sure Barry is it? good? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to troll it. And then I watched last night, the second episode. And I was like, oh shit, this is really good. And it's really smart. And I'm clicking again. And I, oh, so Bill Hader and his collaborators are steering into this show as an abuser narrative. Right. In ways that I didn't understand or remember, let alone appreciate. This isn't saying the show did anything wrong. They can't control how we watch this stuff. But at the same time, I feel really frustrated that I couldn't get the context right 
to click back into place at something. It just it's just another There's an entire point. year's worth of television that's on right now. And yeah. you know, I don't know if there's going to be the streets are are littered with printed out blog posts about what's happening at Netflix and what it all means and whether or not there's going to be this huge contraction and spending and volume at that at Netflix which I think would be a canary in the coal mine for some of these other places that are like we're going to spend 3 billion dollars on content and we'll see what happens with subs later on down the line like that might change and it might change quicker than we expect just because it seems like everything in the world is happening faster than one might expect. Like sometimes when they're just like, oh yeah, like this guy might buy a company and you're like, right. But like that takes a while, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you got to file paperwork. Probably, yeah. Like, right. right? Like they got to get notarized. I feel the same way about like TV. Like you could tell me that in August, two of these streamers are going to fold and the other three are going to be like, we're radically downshifting the amount of shows we're making and leaning into quality and also raising our prices, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, I mean, like, it does seem like there's going to be, at the end of the year, you'll have your top 10 list, and then there will be the 10 shows that you meant to finish, or the 10 shows that you really were so excited about, but for whatever reason couldn't start or didn't get to. And maybe there will be a point where it's like, oh, that great spring of 2022, when people go back and discover Tokyo Vice or something like that, but... Let me make a present a counterfactual. We also might just be wrong about the significance of this moment in the scheme of things. Entirely which is possible. to say, which is to say that this is an absolutely unique collision of you know bottomless pits of money like Apple entering the marketplace in a big way, while every service was basically cleansing the TL of every show they had built up. And this Emmy window, because it's worth noting, and also at a moment when one era ended and whatever is coming next begins, because it's worth noting that some of the shows we're talking about, Saul, Ozark, Atlanta, they're done or ending this year. Mm -hmm. You know, Atlanta has a whole other season that's been shot, but I think that's coming on later this year. And then Atlanta's done. Um, A lot of the other things we're talking about, there won't be the other girl from Plainville. You know what I mean? There there won't be more banners, more heaven. Um, these are ones and dones types of shows. The landscape could be different once some of the legacy shows are off of it and, um, you know, the Netflix cost cutting or other places cost cutting shake out. I don't know if we'll look back fondly at this insane time, but it might become more manageable. Yeah. It might not, but, yeah. it, it, but it is worth it. I don't want to overreact to it. I mean, but there's I, a I, lot of critical darlings on right now. We're not really Moon Knight aside we're not really in a very heavy blockbuster TV moment, I, I don't think. And we will be when we get to Obi-Wan and Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings, which you know will be its, its own kind of stress test. Yeah, I think that's the thing to, as a, that might be pushed back against my maybe things will be okay narrative, which is that it's not like once the Emmy window is closed in June, July, August, September. They're going to go back to like two, one show a week. Yeah. Yeah, or it's <laughs> going to be like, well, let's push out all the, the crap, you know, or the, or not just the crap, but like the stuff that we don't think will win awards slash the stuff that we don't understand what we have. Right. Like that fun time when all of a sudden, like, you know, we are lady parts is on Peacock and we're like, oh, that's good. Right. You know, does the network know it's good? I don't know, but it's good. Like a bunch of things like that. We, we usually enjoy those little surprises, but that's not what's going to happen because Lord of the Rings and um, Game of Thrones is back and... You know, we could run down the list. The, the boys will be back. Like all these giant shows will be back. Well, it's just like we, you know, we came of age as podcasters with each other at a time when we were probably like, it seems weird that they just have like two or three shows on a week. Most of them are on Sunday. <laughs> like, what do we, but then we would make time, spend our time talking about lots of other stuff. And now it's like, be careful what you wish for. So maybe this is podcaster problems. Maybe this is too, way too plugged in TV guy problems. But I do think that. I know people who love television and love a good TV show and are are overwhelmed by stuff. And, yeah. and, and sometimes I mention things to them and they're just like, I've never heard of that even. Because it's not as if, I do think an element is podcaster problems because we can't talk about this stuff the way we'd like to talk about it. It doesn't mean that high quality stuff isn't just entering the library where it will presumably stay to be discovered or enjoyed by the majority of people who will watch it later in their life. But, and thus then it becomes about like, I'm going to maintain my HBO Max subscription because I just know there's a constant baseline of quality that I haven't engaged with yet. Yeah. Maybe that's part of it. But I do know, you know, just as a as a matter of fact, that like the addiction to instant 
feedback is baked into the TV landscape now. And what I mean by that is, you know, the box office and the way movies were made changed so radically over the last 20 and 30 years when looking at the financial returns of the movie on the opening weekend became the only thing that mattered and became a spectator sport that was covered in mainstream publications. You couldn't ever really do that with TV because it was a different animal, because Nielsen's were a little bit subjective and because things built over time because they aired over time. Once things switched to streaming, Netflix knows exactly who watched what, for how long, when they turned it off, when they turned it back on again, and what they watched instead. And once you have access to that, it's like a drug. So, you know, you mention like a, a new show that, that debuts on a streaming service. The streaming service isn't like, cool, another feather in our library cap. They are like, okay, it's been 48 hours. How many people watched it? Right. And how do they watch it to completion? And what did they like? And if they don't like what they see, they're going to be making knee-jerk decisions. It is all amplified. It is all FOMO. They don't want us to mow. You know, <laughs> they, they, they want us to foe the mow. They Bezos, want us let me mow. <laughs> I'm just saying. So uh, we can wrap it up frantic. there. Yeah. So Thursday, we'll try it. We'll, we'll hit Atlanta. Maybe we'll talk a little more under the banner. Uh, yeah. And there's lots of other I'm enjoying stuff. these shows at our gentlemanly lawnmower <laughs> pace. <laughs> right just going out there having a catch we were produced by Kai McMullen as always thank you Andy for joining me thank you for everybody for listening we will be back on Thursday I thought that was a great job I did looking back <laughs>